How, how long are we? How long are we? Well, we're live on the air right now. As long as we need to be, oh, my friend. Cool. All right, then. <laughs> no, don't you sure don't worry about everything. watching the clock here. This is the sloppiest <laughs> run radio show that you will ever be on. We have in found your our life. people. <laughs> you, have, you have found your people. Uh, you notice that the commercial set ended, and we were in the middle of a conversation. I thought, you know, nobody ever turns off their radio because it gets really quiet. <laughs> you know. Because they want to see how long you will be foolish enough not to make noise on a medium <laughs> that exists purely from noise and not vision. Yeah. So I doubt we lost anybody, Sandy. No. I'd, I'd be yeah. surprised. Heck, I don't know how many people are out there. There could be two or many more. I don't know. <laughs> I never know. That's the joy of this job, I guess. Let me get to my notes here. Let me start with Drew. Drew Nicholas. Hi, Drew. How are Hi, you? Good morning. Good morning. I will, I will remind people that we are... Uh, Heavily involved with the 16th Annual Big Sky Documentary Film Festival uh, and uh, doing interviews all week, all day uh, with various people involved. Drew, uh, let me see if I've got this right. Mm -hmm. Co-founded the film collective in medias. Res, yeah. Res. Yep. Um, <laughs> and and there, there are a lot of things I, I see that you've been involved with, Netflix and all these different things. Yeah, yeah. But here's what I found most fascinating. Naropa University's, you, you went to Naropa University's Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. Is you that bet. correct? Yep. <laughs> did you get a t-shirt? Uh, no. No. Because no. I was going to try and buy it from you if you did. In fact, <laughs> if, if they don't make those, I might see if I can start Actually, manufacturing those. I did get a Naropa t-shirt while I was out there. Did you? I did. I forgot about that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. You might want to dig that back out. That's very impressive, but maybe only to old guys like me. I don't know. Um, and... and Sandy Whitehawk is is my other guest this morning, and Sandy, you are the subject of the film Blood Memory, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was going back and looking at uh, uh, some footage of you, and I think you were talking back in Minneapolis. I think that's where the interview is being uh, conducted. And I don't know if Drew, if you were conducting the interview or who was conducting the interview. You were sitting at a desk, and you were talking about. Let me get to the rest of my notes here. I'll do this. Sandy Whitehawk's story of adoption, and I thought this was a powerful statement. Sandy Whitehawk's story of adoption is not of saving an orphan, but of creating one. So that is kind of the basis of this film. Um, let me go back to Drew. Uh, Drew, how did you get interested in this entire subject yeah. of, of removing Native children from their homes and... Uh, putting them into adoptive families. Yeah. Um, so right out of film school, 2010, I was with a bunch of friends in a coffee shop talking, what are we going to do now? What projects? You know, things like that. And uh, there was a, an adoptee there in the coffee shop who was from Minnesota mm -hmm. and had been removed to Pittsburgh and was back out. And you're from Pittsburgh? Yeah, that's where I was. Okay. Yeah, I'm from Pennsylvania, right. Eastern PA, um, but spent the last 12 years in Pittsburgh. And... Uh, the, this uh, adoptee who had been removed out to Pittsburgh as a youth was back there as an adult, and she um, overheard us talking. She said, I have a, I have a story for you. Um, really? So I, that she was not at the table? She no, was just interjecting. Interesting. Yeah. The beauty of coffee shops. You yeah, all get right. to hold the same conversation whether you <laughs> expect to or not. Yeah. yeah. And she told me a little bit about it, and uh, the first boarding school, um, which are these assimilation schools uh, funded by the government, was in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which is in the center of the state. Mm. And I had uh, grown up visiting that town a lot and never heard of the school. 
all my time growing up. Yeah, you don't see that sign that. when they say state softball champions 1978. <laughs> they very seldom are gonna are gonna advertise this powder their their chamber of commerce sign out on the side of yeah. town. Yeah, yeah. And so I called up Sandy because that woman had given me Sandy's name, um, and I said, uh, "I'm really interested in this. Uh, could I talk to you?" And classic Sandy style, she goes, "You can talk to me if you come out to my powwow in Minneapolis at the next month." So I uh, got in my car and drove out to Minneapolis and then just started developing a relationship over the past nine years as we are here. <laughs> Sandy, Sandy, what was your connection with the woman that was in the coffee shop? She had contacted me back for probably around 2000 when um, she first heard the work that we were beginning to do in creating, um, I shouldn't say creating, but we were given the path of a ceremony and creating that space for welcoming our relatives back and acknowledging our relatives who lost us, our mothers and fathers and grandparents. And uh, so she heard about that because there was, um, I was in the papers in the Chicago Tribune and different things, uh, different papers, and so she saw that. And then back then there used to be a news thing called Indian Country Today, and so Indians across the country used to subscribe to that Mm -hmm. paper, and I was also in the paper there and so out in Pittsburgh she saw that emailed me and we started conversing she told me her story and I offered whatever support I could for her just most of us don't have anyone close to us to really talk about what our lived experience is like as an adoptee so that's how she knew about me this is this is your lived experience as well yes I was yeah how old were you when you were adopted? so I was 18 months old when I was adopted out so that would have been 1955 that I was removed and I was adopted by a white missionary couple and raised, they moved from South Dakota and when, uh, so I grew up primarily in rural Wisconsin. You were, you were born in South Dakota then? Yes, on the Rosebud Reservation. Okay. Um, I, was, I was watching a video of an interview with you uh, prior to you coming in and I was struck by one of the things you talked about in the interview was the, the reasons given for the removal of Native children from the homes were things like no electricity, no running water. Yes, not in enough a, bedrooms. In, in not enough bedrooms in in a, in a, a living situation where things like electricity and running water were not even available. Right, and and yet children removed from the homes and put into adoptive families. Right. How how old were you when you? really started to explore, at least in your own mind, as to the history and what what all of this meant to you? So I was 35 years old before that happened, before I real um, explored what had happened to me. I was um, about seven years sober. I was in recovery. A lot of things from my past were starting to bubble up over the years. And I knew that um, in order to stay sober, I had to be diligent and uh, look at what had happened to me and uh, process that. So it was uh, right after a uh, 10-week session that I went through for uh, mothers or children who had been, women who had been molested by their mothers. Mm -hmm. And through that um, 10 weeks, I brought up, I didn't, it was an accident. I certainly didn't plan to talk about my adoption because I didn't think that was relevant somehow. And I had all this locked in shame, anger, hurt, you know, confusion. I didn't really have an identity, but I was so used to that, 
that I didn't think that was my issue. Felt normal to you. Yeah, I thought that, and that even the sexual abuse didn't occur to me that that was what that was until I was 35. So going through this experience in this group is what brought that out. And after, uh, it's a longer story, mm-hmm. but um, it was at the end then of this 10 weeks, this a Puerto Rican counselor, and I think she understood this being a woman of color. Mm-hmm. Because she said to me, Sandy, you've done amazing work. You know, you've just faced everything. We're so you've just done really well. You're on your way to some good healing, except that you don't know what it means to be a woman of color. And your the first trauma that happened to you is was at you because of your you are a child of color. Because of your removal from your home. Yep. And she, I remember she said, um, you were culturally raped, and I. It's just a powerful thing to be told. And I'm like, what are you? ah," But yet there was this part of me that knew it was true, but it was I couldn't put it together yet. But so that was in March. um, That our beginning of April when that 10 weeks was done. And by July, another crazy cool story, how that came together. I was on my way to the reservation to see if I could find my family. Were you successful in that? Yes, I was. Do you still have uh, a relationship? Yes, I do. My brother's in the film. Interesting. Well, let's go back to the film here, Drew. Give us an idea of, uh, because the, the the interesting thing and really the wonderful thing about the Big Sky Documentary Film Fest is a lot of times you don't know what you're hitting into. We saw two films yesterday. Um, Nick, what was the, what was the, what did we say the names were? Yes, my wife and I were talking about going to this. Favela Rising. Which the first one was what? Favela Rising. Favela Rising, right. And then the second one is about Afghan uh, bicycles. So you have this this wide, wide range of films, and and you get the most basic idea of what it's going to be heading heading into that film experience. What Give us, give us some uh, a synopsis of what the film covers. Sure. I mean, I know that's a, yeah, that's a big yeah, question, yeah. And, a, and I'm looking for a, a smaller answer, but mm-hmm. but is it... Is mm-hmm. it uh, uh, a storyline? What, yeah. what can we expect? So uh, the, the main storyline is in 2015, uh, Sandy had made a mention of the, the healing work that she's been a part of. She can go into that a little bit more, I'm sure. But um, 2015, Sandy brought this uh, ceremony and a gathering um, back to Rosebud to welcome those who had been removed through adoption, foster care, um, and their families uh, welcome them into the community and just create a space and awareness in the community. And so that was 60 years uh, after Sandy's removal. She brings this, uh, this experience back to her community. And uh, in, in my mind, really, it was a, it was a full circle for her, too. Um, so th- that's, that's sort of, the, that's sort of the, the main narrative that we're following actively. And uh, Sandy meets an uncle in the process of organizing helping organize this event, um, worked with some awesome uh, uh, Marlise Whitehat, who runs a fantastic program, uh, Tawahe uh, uh, Glue Kanipi, um, and they did uh, bringing the family back together, and they do horse healing uh, programs for, for kids and adults. And so um, it was just a really, really great experience watching the community welcome home their lost relatives, their stolen relatives. And then... Uh, the other piece of the film uh, documents this uh, systematic dis- dismantling of the Indian Child Welfare Act that's taking place right now. Um, we follow an attorney by the name of Mark Fiddler, and uh, he's from Minneapolis, but uh, 
from uh, his family's from the Turtle Mountain Reservation in North Dakota, and uh, he's very heavily involved in uh, the decision in October of this last year that um, in Texas federal court deemed the Indian Child Welfare Act unconstitutional. And so we documented him since the baby Veronica case, which went to the Supreme Court in 2013. Right. We document his process as one of the leaders in this movement to get ICWA off the books. And ICWA was passed in 1978 to stop removal like Sandy's story. Um, and some would say it's not being followed and some would say it's failing. And that's part of the debate in the film. Um, but I, I think you'll see in the film that there's a reason it's quote unquote not working. Right. Is so much of what's going on in our country right now is not working. Sandy, how do you feel about um, with with the type of work that you're doing and the the discord in this country right now? And it's it's so interesting in terms of we. I don't know, maybe you don't feel like we've made a lot of progress, but I think most people feel that there is progress made. And I think most of us that come from a white privileged background feel that there's been great progress made. And a lot of us have been f forced to recognize the fact that there was, in many cases, nowhere near the progress we thought we had made. How did, Are you optimistic? I'm only going to speak about adoption because that's what the movie's about. I have lots of other ideas about the kind of progress the country has made. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of adoption, there is a narrative about adoption that we've all been lulled into believing, and that's that children need um, safety and permanency. Uh, the three pillars of the Children's Bureau is safety, permanency, well-being. So we have a disproportionate amount of Native children being removed from their homes and adopted out um, under that um, under that thesis there that this is what we need, not looking at what really can be provided for family healing and family preservation, which is family preservation is what the heart of ICWA is, is to preserve the, the Indian family. So we do have that disproportionate amount. I don't think we've made a whole lot of progress in that area because adoption, the adoption narrative was not written by and for us at first as Native people, and secondly, for those who are impacted by adoption, and that's the adoptee and the parents who are left behind. We're still seeing um, adoption, private adoption agencies really preying on the duress of mothers who are pregnant um, because babies are still in high demand. So we haven't made much progress. If we've made any progress, the progress we've made is the awareness of this and the uh, horrible impact it has on our community as Indian people. I think I saw uh, in the interview I was watching with you that uh, something like uh, the percentage of, of Native children adopted is 7%, but the Native population overall is 1%. Correct. That's a, that's a pretty staggering statistic. Mm -hmm. And a lot of, we can look at a lot of different things that impact that. Right now people are saying that it's the meth. Meth has caused this horror, you know. And while I know meth has had a horrible impact uh, on us, I seriously don't see any difference between the 70s when we were looking at addiction to alcohol mm -hmm. and to other drugs then. And I just, there's a part of me that always thinks, 
weren't you guys awake back then? Because yeah. we were still removing children. One in every, one in every uh, four children were taken from their home. So there's a um, there's a bias there, and the timeline set for uh, mothers to become well enough to have their children back with them are unrealistic timelines. Social workers uh, locked into their timelines and policies that they may have are not even able to really make some of the best decisions for our families to become well. And there aren't, there isn't a lot of protections for them. So it's, it, there's several layer, several layers. It, it is sort of complex, but what I don't understand is why in these helping professions, why, um, why they see us differently. Why, why can't a mother who is recovering from addiction, a brown woman, um, why can't she be seen as uh, a healthy mother eventually? Why can't they see what she could be, not where she's at? Do you see that specifically to the Native population or more so, or just to, to people of color in well, general? Well, I think addicts in general are judged. True. I'm a recovering addict, and, and I see that. As am I, by the way. All right, yeah. <laughs> And um, so, but there's certainly another, uh, you know, being brown has, has its issues too. It's, it really does. Um, people may not think they have a bias, but it's there. There's a lot of unconscious bias. That's one of the things I find most interesting about the conversations that are happening these days is the, the feeling of, well, I'm, uh, I'm not racist, I'm not biased because of boom, boom, boom. I'm colorblind. Because I'm colorblind, because this and that, uh, you know, all of the various platitudes that you hear from people. And I, th- and I think if nothing else, I, I think the discussion these days is causing a lot of us to dig a lot deeper into, there... into <laughs> yeah, you, you, you might been have been raised in a in a situation where you were taught this this and this but it, a lot of it's pretty surface mm-hmm. and it's it's pretty scary to dig down deeper for a lot of people the there's a study out um i'm not going to be able to say who it is but someone was really interested in it if they contacted me i could get it to them okay but um we had a someone do a, a presentation at a training that i'd organized and it was on unconscious bias. And she is a psychologist and said that um, in what their research, they found that when a uh, white social worker had a gray area where they could actually go either way in terms of preservation, removal, or not removal, preservation or permanent removal or other resources that would help, when those moments came, they they leaned toward the the negative outcome mm-hmm. or and to the, a bias about well they're not going to get well anyway i can tell they're they're going they're not going to participate in a, and no one really knows if you like i said if you're a recovering addict you know the people who you think least are going to become sober are the ones that are you know contributing to society and and knocking it out of the park and and um so we know that you can't predict that yet in this study it showed that people lean toward that so we have that by every single one of us has an unconscious bias and we're prejudiced about s- some things. And it's understanding that what I try to do in our trainings was try to get every social worker to understand they had that 
and to work within that. Reflect and always check yourself as opposed to um, thinking you know, because nobody knows in those situations. Yeah. yeah. Well, we do. I, I know I said we have unlimited time, but we actually don't have unlimited time. <laughs> Way to go to see now. I know. Like see, there, there's, there, there's that Can unconscious bias of mine on time. You Can know, I say never, something, though? Yes, you may. I would like to say a greeting to if there is any uh, Native person out there who is an adoptee or grew up in foster care, I'd like to say a special greeting to you and to tell you you're not alone, that there are thousands and thousands of us out there. And to any mother or father who has uh, had their child taken from them, and maybe you're even thinking, well, I wasn't in a good place when that happened, and it's my fault. Um, I'm here to tell you that it's good that you gave someone life and to forgive yourself and to know that uh, you have a purpose. And I would like to also say that if anyone needs to get in contact uh, with me for that purpose, um, on the, the radio we'll announce it, but it's just sandywhitehawk at gmail.com, or you can go to our website, which is We Are Coming Home. Dot com. Which is where I was going to wrap this up. So mm-hmm. you you have anticipated that beautifully. <laughs> you know, and, and, and the other thing I was going to mention is that we've talked about uh, the Dakotas and we've talked about Minnesota and we've talked about Pennsylvania. It is a huge uh, area of discussion here in Montana. I know Montana Public uh, Television has been doing some, some documentaries on that. Um, and we really appreciate you taking the time to come in and, and share with us. And, and why don't you give us, again, how people can contact you or, or your organization? Yes, you can contact me at my email, which is sandywhitehawk at gmail.com. Or you can check out our website at wearecominghome.com. All right. Thank you so much, Sandy. It's a pleasure to have you here. Sandy Whitehawk, along with uh, Drew Nicholas. Drew, thank you so much for mm-hmm. taking the time to come in, and thank you for putting your effort into this very important film. We appreciate it. Thank you. Shows at uh, 1.30 this afternoon. Is that at MCT? Yeah, it this is. One? That's a great place to... Have yeah, you been in the beautiful. theater? Yeah. Sandy, have you been in there? Uh-uh. Yeah. You, oh, it's well, just... Yes, yeah. I've been there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is that one place where you watch that movie? That one place. Oh, okay, Isn't that a beautiful spot? It was very, yeah, where we were the other night. Okay. Yes, exactly. Sure. You, don't, you remember the one where you were at the I'm other night, Sandy? I'm one of those people who never knows where I'm at or where I'm going. Oh, my God. Up. You're the, my favorite kind of people. <laughs> my favorite kind of people. Thank you, guys. We're the Thank Trail you. 1033.